Well, this morning I took my NCAA men's basketball bracket sheet, followed it up, threw it away. <laughs> Never really filled out one of those things, and all it did was show that I was not a prophet. And, uh, quite disgusted with how things turned out, but nonetheless, that's how it is. And uh, I was reminded of that as I threw it in the paper of the text that we were doing this morning. And in a lot of ways, what you find in this text, in Genesis chapter 6, is God taking the world and falling it up and throwing it away. And you ask yourself, you know, if God is all that he claims to be in the Bible, if he is the God of love, how is it that he can take the world, fall it up, and throw it away, with a thing called flood. Well, what you have in verses 1 through 8 is what's titled here in your bulletin, the prelude to judgment. It is the explanation. It is the thought process that went behind uh, the, the judgment of the flood. And as I've studied this, I, I found that it's produced more questions than answers. And uh, we're going to read this, and you're going to sit here after reading it and thinking, okay... I'm ready. I've been waiting for an explanation on this deal. Let's hear what you got. And I'm going to tell you, you're going to have to wait a little bit longer. Uh, I'll tell you a couple of possible explanations for this. But these eight verses are perhaps, uh, in this small passage, one of the most debated passages. The good news is it uh, is not very significant to our theology, what we believe. Uh, it's curiosity. It's interesting. Uh, and... You know what? You can believe either one of these views. There's, there's more than two views, but I'm, I'm going to just present to you two views. And uh, I've held both different times in my life, and I've switched back and forth. And I told the first service, you know, I might switch by the end of the sermon uh, which view I go with. But uh, I just want to present these things to you, but I, I want to get the, the major point to this, and I hope that it's not overshadowed with the, the uh, debate at hand. Uh, so... If you will just turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6, as we're going through chapter by chapter in the book of Genesis, this is one passage that made me pause before I chose Genesis, but maybe I don't really want to do Genesis, uh, but uh, nonetheless, here it is. And so let's stand together as we read verses 1 through 8. Now it came about, when man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were beautiful. They took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. The Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men. They bore children to them. Those were the men, mighty men were of old, men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of men was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was on evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things, and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. You may be seated. Verse 9 begins a new literary unit in the book of Genesis. It's, it's always marked that same phrase. Uh, these are the generations of so-and-so. 
So what you've got in verses 1 through 8 is the end section of the generations of Adam. How do the uh, genealogy of Adam come to play? What's the end result? And so we have it right here in these first eight, eight verses. Now, uh, let's just start with verse 1. And uh, what we have here is description of the, of the times. Simply, the population is growing. If you will look at Genesis 5, you see the genealogy, the lifespans of these individuals. These guys are living hundreds of years. And you combine that with the multiplication of mankind, and you have that, uh, well, earth is quickly filling up. Uh, and that is the situation that we find ourselves. Uh, then, verse 2, uh, well, we got a little kink in the work. So what does this mean? Sons of God. First question, who are the sons of God? Okay. Now, this uh, first let me give you the, the view that is the oldest view. It is held by the early church as well as uh, the ancient Jews and the writing as well as modern day Jews as, as well. Uh, they believe that the sons of God, and I once also believed these things and sometimes still do, uh, the sons of God are angelic beings. Okay, uh, That's their view. The reason they present this is because the sons of God... Is referred later on in the book of Job, Job chapter 1, verse 6, Job chapter 2, verse 1, and referring to angelic beings, okay? And so that's why they get this uh, reference as being some kind of angelic being. Now, the problem with this, those of you who uh, are astute uh, scholars in the Bible would say, well, wait a second, didn't Jesus make mention about this? How can angels have some kind of human relations with mankind? Didn't Jesus say something about this? Well, he did. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 29 and 30, he says, You are mistaking that understanding the scriptures are the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Jesus seems to explain that angels in heaven are not marrying folks, uh, that, that there's not that type of relationship. So how does that, uh, well, how do we hold to this view that these are some kind of angelic beings? Well, the explanation is that uh, this Bible verse in Matthew, Jesus does not say that they're not capable of having sexual relations with mankind, but they, they do not. Good angels do not. But that fallen angels, those who rebelled against God and followed Satan, did in fact do this, uh, that, uh, that they are capable of that. Jude chapter 6 seems to uh, allude to this as well as uh, passages in 1 Peter uh, that uh, refer to this. And so that is the view that's being held at that point. Now, another view is that uh, the godly ones, or the sons of God, refers not to angelic beings, but to the descendants of Seth. And that the daughters of men refer to the descendants of Cain. Those of you who've been with us understand Genesis 4 and 5 seems to contrast these two lines. And so the argument is that because this is the context of Genesis 4 and 5, that that's in reference here. Uh, and that the sons of God is not heard of to refer to a man. That there are other passages that speak to this as well, referring to a man. And so that's their view. So what is the great sin? All right. Either way, what is the great sin? There's something about this that when God sees it, he says, you know what, that's it. We're going to uh, destroy the earth. Well, if you take it as being the angelic beings, the great sin is, well, <laughs> mixed marriages with, uh, you know, with uh, angels with man. That's uh, not in God's plan. And so God says, you know what, this is a corruption of the human race. Why is this important? 
remember, Genesis 3.15, God said that it would be of the seed of a woman, the seed of Eve, who would come and reverse the curse and would destroy the work of Satan. He himself would be wounded. Well, uh, if you look at this, this is Satan's way of trying to destroy the, Eve of, uh, the seed of Eve and to dilute and corrupt the seed. And so this could be as a satanic attack on that uh, that uh, position. Well, if this is the uh, issue of not angelic beings, but the daughters of Cain with uh, uh, the daughters of uh, yes, the daughters of Cain with the, the seed or the, the men of Adam, uh, Seth. Whew. All right, the men of Seth, daughters of Cain. If that's the issue, then what's the great sin here? Well, the great sin in this case is that perhaps this is an issue of a godly person marrying an ungodly person. And thus you have mixed marriages, not of, of beings, but of faith. And that you find as a prohibition throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. In, in God's written word, you do not have the condemnation of, of intermarrying among races, but the condemnation of intermarriage among faiths. And that's why God said specifically to the Israelites not to marry those of other uh, races, not because of the other races, but because they did not worship God. And so you see that as a common theme throughout, and that could very well be what is the case here. And so at the, the bare minimum of what we could agree with, something went wrong with marriage. Something went wrong with marriage here. And it is interesting to, to have our curiosity tickled about this, but that's one thing that we can say. And it is very important to God that the marriages follow his direction. It is through these marriages and through these families that God would bring his Messiah. And friends, it's still important that we have marriages and that we have families that are under the guidance of God because they still point back. To the Messiah, that we are to teach a lesson about the love of God and the submission of mankind through marriages and through families. And that is still the case. All right. Well, I hope it did not confuse you. Y'all just bear with me on these technical things. I know these are questions you're asking. And so I feel like I just need to address them a little bit. Uh, now, not everything's rested here. Verse 3. The Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh, and unless his days shall be 120 years. Alright, everybody clear? Go on? <laughs> no. It's not quite so clear. Uh, what, what is he talking about here? 120 years. And, and whose spirit? Is he talking about God's spirit? He's talking about some other spirit? Or, uh, and what does it mean to strive with man forever? Well, there's a lot of questions about this, but what seems to be uh, one thing understood is that he's talking about human lifespan. Okay? Either he's saying, you know what? I will no longer allow mankind to live hundreds of years like you see in Genesis 5, and that is going to be limited, capped off at 120. And that is mercy of God, because mankind in living in, uh, with a long life in sin is going in a further and further direction in moral depravity against God. And so to cut off their lifespan was a merciful act. That could be what God is talking about. Or, what could be, is that God sees this sin that's uh, going on worldwide, and he says, you know what? There will be judgment, and there will be 120 years until judgment comes, and life will be cut off then. So either way, he's talking about a shortening of life. Either there's immediately, or throughout the line of, of genealogy. But, one thing we do know is that in this moment in time, we have 
God's mercy that he's giving to us in verse 3. Now verse 4, we just get from one little thing to another here. Who are these Nephilim? Uh, what is that term and these great ones? All right, well, y'all just bear with me one more verse here. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. All right, now, if you believe uh, that these are angelic beings that have intermarried with the daughters of mankind, then what you have here is a product of their relationship. And so, uh, well, you know, you've got a, a supernatural being of some sort of uh, extraordinary strength or extraordinary statue. Uh, in fact, later on, in Numbers chapter 13, verse 23, this name is referred to again, referring to the descendants of Canaan that the Israelites will have to fight, and they call them the Nephilim, these great ones, and referring to their large statue. Uh, long, these are giant type of folks. That would be uh, the understanding you would have if you believe the angels are intermarrying with humans at this point. Now, if you believe that these are... Two humans marrying together, one that's godly, one that is ungodly. Well, what exactly are the Nephilim here? Well, those that hold this view, verse 4, believe that this passage is a parenthetical phrase. In other words, that while the sons of, of, of mankind or the sons of God are intermarrying with the, the daughters of man, while that's going on, at the same time, there were occurring these Nephilim that were here. In other words, these People of renown is another way of saying that word. People of renown uh, that were going on. Notorious folks that were there at the same time of these events that were occurring. Uh, so that's the way that would be interpreted in that case. And so then it goes back to the issue of hand when the sons of God came to the daughters of men. They were born to, to them. They were the mighty men who were old men of renown. Uh, now, verse 5. Now that you're all clear on that. <laughs> all right. Rest assured, guys, it won't be clear. And here's one thing I would say. Jesus has told us all that he wanted us to know about this. When he referred back to this time, this is how he referred to it. Matthew 24. Referring to the end times, he says the end times are going to be as in the days of Noah. Verse 37, 39 of Matthew 24. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. So when Jesus looked back on that time, that's how he summarized it. He says they're eating and drinking, marrying and, and giving in marriage. What's the problem with that? We still eat, drink and marry. The problem was that they were abusive and eating, abusive and drinking, and abusive and marrying and giving in marriage with very little thought into it and somewhat of a careless mindset about it. And so Jesus says that in the end times it will be like that. And that's as much information as he gives us concerning this passage. So what you and I have to do is say, you know what? I just got to live with not knowing the answers. And that's a good thing to do. Get used to it. All right? It's not going to be the last time it happens in our life. And so uh, we just have a little bit to pique our interest in this. But we do know that whatever it is involves marriage. And it is such depravity that God has his heart sickened at this point. 
Now, verse 5, we're going to get to the prelude to the judgment. Verses 1 through 4 is the description of what's going on. Verse 5 is God's view. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was on evil continually. All right, now, the prelude to the judgment. Let's look at what God does. What are his actions and the prelude to the judgment? The first thing we see in verse 5 is that God sees the sin. God sees the sin. Well, you think, well, that's no big deal. Doesn't God see everything? I mean, is if he's all-knowing, if he's everywhere, does he not see everything? Yes, that is true. But the language here is, is given in man's language. Help us understand that God is not just aware of everything. He is taking special note of this thing that's going on. He pays attention to it. You and I do the same thing. If we were to go into a house uh, to visit someone's house, one of the things I do, if I'm interested in the person, I want to talk to them, I want to get to know them, I will survey the house. And that's why, you know, folks, ladies especially, like to make sure the house looks nice and tidy because they know that someone's surveying the house and they're making judgment calls. Uh, well, that's, you know, that's just how life is. Well, I go in, I'm looking in, and I'm trying to figure out what's the point of contact. Yes, I, I see the coffee table and I see the curtains and... And I see the, the pictures on the wall. But what I'm looking for is something I can relate to. Is there anything that corresponds to my character? Now, if someone had a nice, big, double-edged sword on the wall, man, I'm going to pay attention to that. And I'm going to think, wow, that's pretty cool. Why? Well, uh, so you ladies think, well, that's just a crazy idea. That's stupid. My wife would agree with you. Well, uh, I just happen to like swords and knives. And I like, I like paying attention to things like that. And I'll see it. And I'll talk with you about it. And I'll ask you the history of it. And then we'll have a little conversation about that. Why? Because it corresponds to my nature of what I myself am interested in. Well, so we have your God looking throughout the world, and he pays attention to sin. Well, you think, well, that doesn't, how does that correspond with the nature of God? Well, the thing is, sin is not just the absence of God and the things of God. Sin is the attack on God and the things of God. Do you understand that? When you sin, when we disobey God, we attack God. We attack his character by our actions. And so if I was coming to your house and you had on the wall a poster that says, Pastors stink. I hate pastors. <laughs> now, that doesn't correspond to my nature, but I'm going to pay attention to it. It's attacking me. I'm going to say, hey, what's the story behind this thing, you know? Yes, I'm going to pay attention to that. Well, when God looks in our life and he sees us acting against his word and his commands, we are attacking him. Yes, he's going to pay attention. Notice the scope of the sin of man and also God's attention. Verse 5. Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. Or another word of saying that is that it was everywhere on the earth. Everywhere that you, you could go. And that every intent of the hearts, of the thoughts of his heart was on evil continually. All right, first, every attempt of the heart, every desire of the heart was on evil continually. Now listen, when God sees us, he doesn't just pay attention to what's on our wall. He just doesn't pay attention to the acts that we do or do not do. Yes, he, he pays attention to when we, when we cut off that person from traffic. But not only that, he pays attention to the thought you're thinking about the person who cut you off in traffic. All right? It's not just the acts, but it's the thoughts and intents 
of our heart. It's like it's one thing to have thoughts, and then it's having an intent to the thought. In other words, as deep as you can get, the areas that we ourselves are afraid to explore about ourselves, God pays attention. He knows the motives of our thoughts. Yeah, every once in a while we, we uh, betray our thoughts, maybe by our facial expressions or, or what we do. But how do you betray the intent of the thought of your heart? God knows. He is aware of it. And friends, that's a frightening thing. In this day and age, it's written in the scripture here, this thought was an evil continually. Every thought. Does that mean that they're thinking, oh, I hate God, I hate God, I hate God. I hate that thing of God because God said that. You know, and is that what they were doing? No. You don't have to be thinking that way to be thinking on evil. You know what thinking on evil is? Is the absence of thoughts of God and really the pronouncement of self in our life. Ourselves are born selfish. Let me explain that. One of the things I've kind of explored recently is what is the most wonderful sight you've ever seen? What is the, the beautiful scenes that you've had and experienced in your life? There's things that create a wonder in your life. Whether it was the birth of a child or maybe a grand visa or a sunset or just the complexity of a, of a, a plant. These things that just cause us wonder in your life. I would say to you, those are the things that God made. And if these things create such wonder in life, how much more does God himself should create that wonder? But instead of living our life and focusing on God, we start thinking, wow, check me out, you know? Look how I look. It's kind of like having a beautiful sunset and you're telling everybody, look at me, look at me, you know? That's how we live life when we know that there is a God who has created such a world, has such wonder, but instead of having our thoughts captivated by this one, we are captivated by ourselves. And such we attack God who alone is worthy of such preoccupation in our mind. And our hearts can be on evil continually. It's not that we attack God. It's just that we exalt ourselves before God and thus attack Him. And so, this was going on continually. Every thought on evil continually. Great was the evil. Verse 6. Not only did the Lord see the sin, the Lord grieved the sin. The Lord was sorry that it made man on the earth. And He was grieved in His heart. That word grieve is the idea, it's the opposite of love. Some folks ask me, is it okay to grieve after you lose a loved one? I say, of course it's okay to grieve. The Bible says that we are to grieve, but not as those without hope. Because of the resurrection, yes, we grieve. What does that mean to grieve? It's to miss someone. To miss someone. That someone that we once had in our life are no more. And because of our love, we grieve. I would say to you that you will not grieve what you do not love. And so when we have this passage that God had his heart filled with grief, it was a remembrance of God, of the presence that once was there, but is no more. But yet he has a great love toward these that he created, and they in the rebellion sin against him, and his heart breaks. My parents are believers in corporal punishment, and they were generous in that. Uh, coming from a long line of farmers on both sides, and just 
how things happened in the mountains of West Virginia and the, the, the farms of Johnston County. Uh, so they, they didn't have to argue much between themselves about that. They just did it, you know. And I, I have some memories of all those punishments that have come my way. I gave them a great opportunity to do that. Uh, Dad, you know, Dad can lose his temper like the best of them. And I often was the, the object of that. And uh, I still remember the fear that comes over me sometimes when I, when, I, when I think back on those. But you know what? The one correction that stabs my heart still, and even just thinking of it, can bring tears to my eyes. It's not whether I was bent over someone's knee being spanked or anything like that. There was one time my mom caught me in a sin. And she knew that it was no good. I was too old to do spankings, and I laughed at her once when doing it. That's not a good thing to do. <laughs> just don't do that. But she cried. She just cried. I thought, you know what? I'd rather be beat all day than have my mom cry. Because when she was crying, it was letting me know. It wasn't just that I failed her expectations. It wasn't just that her pride was wounded because I wasn't behaving like a, a pastor's child ought to behave. In her tears, I saw that she loved me. And that when I did these things, her heart was wounded. There's very few things I'd, I would rather not do than wound my mother's heart. You see what this passage is saying? The Lord was sorry. It made man on this earth, made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. Another way of saying grieved in his heart, his heart was filled with pain. You could say anthropomorphically, given the language of man, God cried. Yes, Derek clapped his son, there were tears in heaven. Not because of just of a baby dying, but because of a human did not regard him and exalted themselves continually before him. And his heart was sorry. You think, well, Pastor, didn't God know this was going to happen? I mean, he knows everything, right? It is the future decisions of his creation. So when God created man, Adam and Eve, didn't he know this was going to happen? I said, yes. And he made them anyway. You see, when he made man, he made a tree of knowledge of good and evil and gave them, with the creation of man, an option to choose that. His hope, his desire, was that they would choose to love him. And to love like this required a choice. If God did not put that tree of knowledge of good and evil, did not give them a choice, then man could not really love God. They would be just like any other creation, an animal without that ability to choose and love. But God built it in. And he knew that with every child born, every land that was conquered would be another place where man would rebel against him and his heart would break. You see, that wasn't all that God knew. God knew that one day his broken heart would also lead to a rejoicing heart. Not only in himself, but in all those who would choose him. And that is what the point of the entire Bible is written for. 
so that you can understand God's plan to turn a broken heart into a rejoicing heart for eternity. Having something to do with his own son, Jesus Christ. And so, we see that God sees the sin. God grieves the sin. Understand. When you sin, you think no one knows. You think I'm not doing any harm. There's no immediate danger. I'm okay. Friends, you could get a glimpse of heaven. There would be tears in heaven over your heart. But as we keep on reading, we'll find that there's a turn. Remember, this is a prelude to judgment. Verse 7. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. From man to animals to creeping things and to the birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. There is such a depravity, such a sin corrupting all of nature. Because mankind is over nature, the animals are influenced by the leaders of this world. And God says it's all going to have to be done away with. And as if you see the balling up that's about to happen. You think, well, what kind of guy is this? Listen, let me just share with you that this judgment that is about to take place does not come in a surprise. God gives them ample warning. Again, looking at verse uh, 3, if that's interpreted one way, is telling them right from the beginning, you've got 120 years. Even if that doesn't mean that, when you look in the genealogy, when God gives word to Noah... There is between 100 years from the giving of the word to Noah as he's building the ark to when the flood comes. That there is over this time period that all the while Noah is to proclaim the message there is judgment coming. Repent and turn to God. And so when the flood comes it should be of no surprise to any person. And there is the judgment. So when God sees the sin there is a grieving over the sin but there is also a judgment over the sin. Rest assured, this is true for us as well. Hebrews 9.27 is appointed once for man to die, and after this the judgment. So with every gray hair, with every wrinkle, with every element that comes with age, it is a warning. There is an end. Some of you think, well, you know, it would be kind of nice if, if uh, in my sin there was immediate judgment. See, our, our thought is, you know, We'll sin, we may be in our heart, in our mind, or in a word that we say, or an action that we do, or what we fail to do. And we say, hey, I got away with it. There was no judgment. I don't have anything to fear. And we mistake the long-suffering of God with the acceptance of God over our behavior. This passage is given to us so that we would not confuse the two. The Bible says very clearly that God is long-suffering... In his actions. In fact, you would see some beautiful passage in the second, uh, First Peter. He says, or in Second Peter, for this they willfully forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It is God's heart for you to repent, to turn from your sins, and so he will allow time to, to continue on. It is an opportunity for us to repent, not an opportunity for us to go further into our sin. What if, just 
Think for me. What if God did give an immediate judgment? Let's say for every harsh word a man spoke, every lustful thought that entered his brain, he was struck with life. Well, we probably wouldn't have any other family. No one would, would exist to uh, produce the race. But you know what would happen? The guys would fear the judgment before they would fear the God. They would think up nice little devices, put little hats on the head with lightning rods. You know? What if, ladies, with every malicious word, gossip, would gain five pounds? Big bad one. But you know, what would happen? We would fear the judgment and not fear the Lord. God wants us to fear Him, to acknowledge Him, to love Him, not just His judgment and fear of the judgment. And so, He gives you opportunity to say, you know what? I'm going to give you a word, a word from Scripture. Will you take it by faith? Or will you be stiff-necked that has to be jerked into submission? That's the question that still remains for each one of us today. The Word of God tells us that it is appointed once for man to die, that there is judgment that comes. The Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So I'm going to ask you, are you going to believe God? He's giving you a word of warning. He's giving us notice. It's going to happen. Will you believe him? Or will you have to be like these who have to wait around until we see the punishment of God for ourselves and then it's too late? The question is, are we going to be stubborn as mules? Or are we going to repent and turn to God with the word from God? That's the question. There is God seeing our sin. But there is a grieving of our sin. But there is a judgment of sin. That will take place. The Lord, the Lord God is merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. Exodus 34, 6. But listen, I do not see in Scripture where God's mercy and long-suffering is everlasting. It is long, but not eternal. You do not see the eternal suffering of God, but you see the long-suffering of God. What does that mean? There is a time and place where God's mercy can and will stop in our life. Let me tell you, it is this truth that spoke to my heart as a 14-year-old. Knowing the words of God, knowing the truth of God, knowing my own sin, thinking, you know what, I can push this off, I can push this off. Let me go to college and live how I want to. Let me have the fun I want to. And sometime when I've got family and kids, I'll get my life right then. But friends, I've felt it in my soul as the word of God can only do much louder than a verbal word that God says, you know what, you do not have tomorrow. It's not promised to you. And why are you presuming upon the mercy of God? The worst thing that could happen is for God to stop convicting of me, convicting me of my sin. And when I realized that, that I could so push off God and resist Him, that He'll stop convicting of me. I thought, my goodness. I don't call the shots. God does. Some folks fear the hand of God. I fear God's hand to be removed. I live on His mercy. I live on His blessing. I live on His grace. And the worst thing that could happen is God to remove His hand from me. I live under mercy, but friends, mercy is not eternal. 
But there's one more verse here we haven't looked at. Verse 8. It's just like God to end this passage with a note of hope. He says, I'm going to blot out everybody. I'm sorry, I think. The emotional response of God. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That word find favor is the same as Noah found grace. God's grace. That's what the word literally looks to is the grace of God. Was Noah without sin? Nope. He was the descendant of Adam, and as such was a sinner. What's the difference? Did he not think selfish thoughts? Yes, he did. Here's the good news. I can be like Noah. I don't have to be like the rest of the population. Though I am sinful in heart, and I think of myself continually, how can I be like Noah? What's the deal about Noah? What we find later on, that Noah had a heart of faith. In Hebrews 11, that he looked to it in faith and that responded to God in faith. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that we're sinless, that yes, we have sin, but we have a hope. We have a hope that God can take care of our sin. Yes, we have sin in life. We see sin around us, but we are not content in the sin. We're not content in the sin. There's a proverb that says that the righteous man may fall seven times, but gets up again. See, here's the great danger. The danger is that you and I will stop fighting the sin in our life. We'll start accepting the selfishness of who we are and what our inclinations and desires are. And we will say to ourselves, you know what? These are natural desires. These are healthy desires. Did God not make me this way? This is the way it ought to be. And I will stop fighting this and I'll start embracing it. It is at that moment of time when we are no longer seeking the Lord, but seeking ourselves. And we have no qualm whatsoever of going down the road of whatever inclination our heart goes toward. The Bible says that the heart is desperately wicked, deceitful above all things. Who can understand? Understand who you are and what you're like, but do not say that this is right. God's plan for you is so much more than the base desires of ourselves, but to exalt the one who is worthy of it all, who created you, and that is the love of God. Resist the sin that is in our life and say, God, have mercy toward me. You know who I am. You know what I tend to do. Forgive me of my sins, Lord, and by your spirit, by your help, by give me the strength to do what you want me to do and call me to do and to have a heart and mind that is, that is exalted on your things, not the things of this world. That's the difference between Noah and everyone else. He didn't just look at the Society around him said, oh, well, this is how it is. Might as well join him. But in the midst of it all, he said, I will be different by the grace of God. You know what? Here's the beautiful thing. We can be like Noah. Like Noah, we too live in worlds of sin. We got sin in ourselves. We're just surrounded by it. But we too, by what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross, we too can say, you know what, Lord? I'm sorry. I need your You have said that judgment's going to come because of my sin. But Jesus paid the penalty for my sin, that judgment. I believe in it. And now because of the scripture that says, 
as many as received him, to them gave you the power to become the sons of God, even to those who believe on his name. Because of that, now I have a new identity with God. And I have a sweet fellowship that can occur. Not because of who I am, but because of who Jesus Christ is. Friends, the fact of the matter is, every single one of us are born in a prelude to judgment. And it's coming our way. But there is a Noah for us. There is a way of rest for us. Yes, God's judgment will go out. His justice will remain intact. But it will no longer be enacted on you and I, but on one who stood in the way. And now, because of what Jesus Christ has done, we have hope and can find favor in the eyes of God. Friends, when God looks in your house, he sees all those things that exalted above and against God. But what he's looking for is Jesus. He's looking for something that corresponds to him. The spirit of God that can come through a heavenly transaction when you ask God to forgive you. That's what he's looking for. Then you've got something to talk about. I want to invite you to pray with me and ask God to be your Lord and Savior. Father, you know my own heart. I cannot fool you. I cannot pretend that I am something that I'm not before you. And I too am like this. I'm standing in a prelude to judgment. But I thank you, Father, that though I sinned, you provided your Son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross being forsaken by you on that cross so that I would not have to be forsaken by you. And I believe that he died for me and rose again. And Lord, because of Jesus Christ, forgive me of my sin. And I want to make you king. And whatever value judgments you have on my behavior, I will agree. I will not agree with my own thoughts and value judgments or what the world says popular opinion. But you would be the authority now. Lord, may I find grace in your sight. Lord, do not take your hand of mercy away from us. We need it. We live in it. We pray this in your precious name. Amen. Let me ask you, if God spoke to your heart, I invite you to respond. There's a couple ways of doing it. One, you can take that care card out that was mentioned earlier. And on the back of it, there's...